0: You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable.
1: This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in there. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so, how many days? How many days a week do you spend on
2: As much as I can, to be honest with you, any time that I get, I'm I'm out there.
1: Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll
0: tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not. So you might as well be here. <laughs>
1: 2022 has been a wild and crazy year already and we aren't even through january yet the animal zealots have been in full court press and they have been introducing bills and trying to influence policy based solely on emotionally charged opinions of how wildlife should be managed However, I am happy to tell you that we are winning small battles across the United States. And you can find all of those updates several places on social media, but just a short list. So, Arizona has been flooded with support from hunters and houndsmen to put down their initiative out there from the HSUS Mountain Lion Foundation and Center for Biological Diversity Uh put in a petition there or they were trying to start a petition and flood the the public comment process and we have been stepping up there. Colorado is seeing two of the bill sponsors for House Bill 22031 they bailed. They're like no way. We're not getting involved in this. Last count I saw was 20,000 emails from hunters and houndsmen across the United States telling these legislators to leave mountain lion hunting in the hands of professionals and supporting science-based wildlife management. There was a bill introduced in Mississippi, and that bill was going to put an end to the use of hounds to hunt deer. And what a age-old, timeless Southern heritage tradition I'm happy to report that my sources on the ground say that that bill is going to die in committee. So anytime a bill is introduced, it is assigned to a committee to study, look over, have readings, hearings, get opinions for, against, all of that stuff. It's a common tactic from legislators when a bill is introduced, instead of uh, just axing it and not accepting it, they can't do that, they have to assign, assign it to a committee. And the bill in Mississippi has been assigned to a committee where they say it will not get a reading and it's going to die on the vine. These are undoubtedly great victories for us. However, the war has not been won. It's no time for complacency. Don't think that we can sit back and wait until next year and fight this all over again. There are several things that you can do now. It's like training for a fight. We've got to keep our minds sharp. We've got to keep our eye on the ball. These folks aren't going away. We have to be vigilant. And I am going to introduce you to an organization that can help us expand our influence. Hunters alone cannot defeat the animal rights movement. We have to find friends on the landscape. And what better friends can we possibly have than farmers and ranchers across the United States? I'm happy to have Teresa Lucas McMahon on the podcast this week. And she is going to tell you about an organization called Protect the Harvest. These folks have been fighting the animal rights movement for a long time. They're fighting it at high levels, federal court levels. They've got a lot of experience on how these organizations can be defeated. It is worth listening to. And if you're a leader in your community, in your state hound organization, You need to know about these folks. You got to know where to find friends when the fight is on. And Protect the Harvest is one of those organizations that can definitely help us. Teresa is going to expose the agenda of the animal rights movement. We're talking about a global plan to rewild and urbanize the human population on this rock that we live on. It will blow your mind We all know that there are things going on. None of us have really been able to put our fingers on it. Therese is going to lay that out for us in this episode. You're going to love it. It's going to blow your socks off. I guarantee it. Enough talking from me. Let's get the tailgate down and dump the box. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest, from the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com. Get your subscription for fifteen dollars a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine promoting the ferret chase experience. On this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, we have got Teresa McMahon on here, and uh, there's there's a part of your name that you're you're posting here on the screen. Teresa, that, that we'll get into in just a minute, but Teresa is representing Protect the Harvest, and we are going to take a, a dive into what that organization is and why houndsmen across the uh, country and, and in our community need to know who you are, Teresa, and what your organization represents. But let's talk, let's talk real briefly about the history of Protect the Harvest and your your surname, or I guess is it your maiden name, is Lucas. Why is that important?
2: Sure. Um, so, yeah, my grandfather is actually Forrest Lucas, the founder of Lucas Oil Products. Um, and about 10 years ago, he came across a issue in Missouri. So he has a cattle ranch out in Missouri that he acquired after he kind of made his big leap into the oil business and um, decided that was going to be his his game of golf. He didn't want to have a bunch of these <laughs> other hobbies. He wanted a cattle ranch like he always wanted since he was a kid um, after showing 4-H cattle and everything else as a kid. Um, so, unfortunately, HSUS, so that's the Humane Society of the United States, came into Missouri and tried to push a ballot initiative that was going to – <sighs> In other words, make it illegal to have a any sort of livestock that was near your house. Um, so if you, they tried to push it as a puppy mill bill, and for cattle. Well, the way they got around this, it was a puppy mill bill, but they didn't describe the actual animal as being only dogs and cats.
1: Imagine we, that we
2: could have included if you really wanted to make a big mess out of it after it passed, it could have included um, livestock. So this was kind of the the whole beginning of everything. So he fought against that, um, started an organization to help push that front. And while it did pass, unfortunately, they were able to get the wording changed and it is completely not going to affect anyone that is in livestock management or, raising. So that was the big thing. Um, The other thing that he really found um, interesting was when he would travel to Europe and um, any international um, trips he would take for Lucas Oil is he noticed the price of food. And he Mm -hmm. noticed that a lot of the farmers and ranchers in other countries were just disappearing. And he figured that if that was happening there 20, 30 years ago, it was going to be on the brink of our country um, pretty soon. And we have seen the same thing that's happened in, you know, Europe come along here 10 years later. And it's it's continuing, um, especially prices of food and especially the regulations and ordinances that people that produce our food have to follow.
1: Mm-hmm. And and there is no time that in my memory that that issue is reached the level of urgency more than it is right now. Uh, it, we see it every day. We see it in the news and things like that. So your grandfather, Forrest Lucas started this organization because he saw an urgency and a need to protect farming and ranching.
2: Yes. And if I know I'm not, a lot of people know his background, they just see Lucas oil all over everything. Um, but he has, a pretty decent rags to riches story. Um, And when I say rags, I mean living in a one bedroom house or one room house with no electricity, no plumbing. um, And you literally are slaughtering the last chicken you have to survive sort of situation. So he knows what it's like to be hungry. Um, And he has a burden for the poor and those that are in similar situations today um, that he was in back then. Mm -hmm. Um, so he sees this as a national security issue as in, if we can't afford our food, if we can't produce our own food, then we are not going to be a successful country. We are not going to be able to, to thrive.
1: I agree a hundred percent with that. I think that's often overlooked is that our agriculture industry and our ranching industry is, is part of our national defense structure. And being an Indiana guy, Indiana boy raised in Indiana, I'm really familiar with, uh, you know, your, your grandfather's story. Uh, you know, it's kind of a hometown hero type thing for people from Indiana. And, uh, so I wanted to just spend a couple minutes talking about his story and then tell them why, you know, tell our audience why this organization is so important for, us. Uh, so I think there is an opportunity here. If you go to your website and you look through your mission statement, there are just tons of parallels. And it, it doesn't just come down to um, ranching and farming livestock. Protect the harvest has been on the uh you know the front fighting tethering bills, animal, you know, pet bills, working stock dogs, all of those sort of things, rodeo stock. You guys have, have been into all of it. So What is the mission? Let's just boil it down to what is the mission of the, uh, of protect the harvest?
2: Sure. Um, the first part is to inform, um, mainly the educational side on informing people of what's actually happening, um, ballot initiatives, legislation, um, their politicians, if they're holding hands and getting money from these animal rights organizations, um, the question is what is happening in your community, in the state and in, on the federal level? Um, the next is to protect. So alongside the informing, we can't actually protect people without informing them first. We need the people right. to understand what's happening and then we can go after those issues and try to, you know, enact right to farm, right to food, you know, different legal actions or legislative actions that can protect each person's right to hunt, fish, um, ranch, farm, you name it, own a dog. Um, and then the last part is respond, which I hate to do that, but, um, (laughs) that it does come down to that sometimes where we actually have to get involved in legal action and help somebody either find, um, the right person that will, you know, stand up for them in court or on a larger scale, which we have some of those going on right now, um, even at the Supreme Court. So it, it, you always hope that the educational side is the the main issue, and that's, you know. But it does get to the respond issue more often than we would like. We'd like mm-hmm. people to actually be able to stand up and do what is needed to be done in the local level, so it doesn't ever get to the state or federal level.
1: Exactly, exactly, and that's, that's one of the things that we have tried to do with this podcast is teach people how to talk about hunting, how to control the narrative about hunting, about educating, and, and our mission is similar. It's three-pronged, preserve, protect, and promote hunting and the ethical use of, of hounds in wildlife management and hopefully by the end of this podcast we can draw some parallels that will make people see why this is so important and i look at protect the harvest as um uh, an ally to help us preserve our lifestyle as well and we have several i mean uh, we won't get into it on this podcast in this episode but we have we have m- several several hundreds of people who um, listen to this podcast, you're also farmers and ranchers. So I actually learned about your your organization through some members of my podcast that, that shared some of your material to our uh, social media platforms. So perfect fit here, I think.
2: Very nice. And uh, so the main message of our organization is protect the harvest. Whether that means you're harvesting soybeans, you're harvesting cattle, You're harvesting, you know, deer twice a year or once a Mm -hmm. year, or you're harvesting squirrels when you're taking your kids out (laughs) for their first hunt. Um, It's really just protecting the rights of the Constitution to have food and to have food security. So it's not necessarily that we're just protecting your right to go out and buy a steak in the grocery store. It's more so than that. It's more so protecting, you know, do you have water rights? Do you have property rights? Do you have, you know, everything that's granted in that constitution should not be touched in our opinion. So while we can't say we try to cover everything in the constitution, because that's, there's lots of groups out there that do that. We try to take the big portion of it, of the property rights, um, for the reason of protecting our food security.
1: Yeah. And I, I see that is an organization that is protecting the fundamental freedoms of the, you know, of every citizen in the United States, you know, your right to enjoy your property, uh, in, in an ethical way and, uh, feed yourself. I mean, how much more basic can you get than that?
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately there are people that do not want those basic rights for people. Um, they've been taught from a very early age, unfortunately, and much of it being through our school systems, um, due to animal rights groups pushing their curriculums through there, um, that, you know, the the food we get just comes from the grocery store. It doesn't right. have to come from a farmer. Um, and that, you know, it'll always be there. And people, I think for, for once, I mean, I, I hate that COVID happened. Um, but for the first time, at least in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not an oldie, but You're not Uh, as
1: old as I am. I can tell by looking at you. I'm
2: 35, but the first time (laughs) in my lifetime, at least, and I know the first time in, say, my parents and my grandparents. After talking to them, um, this was the first real wake-up call that people had. Of oh, there's no why is there no meat on the shelf? Why is there no you know bread on the shelf? What what's going on here? Um, It definitely woke a lot of people up. The question is, did it wake enough people up?
1: Yeah, for sure. I just wrote an article and it was published in, um, Southern Hound Hunting Magazine and it was called Seize the Moment. I've never seen an opportunity for, um, the hunting community and the farming and ranching community to make an impact that people can actually relate to and see, uh, hunting license sales, fishing license sales, everything went up during COVID. And while most of the world is sitting back, uh, you know, wringing their hands and, and stressed out about covid the hunting fishing ranching farming community should be looking at it as an opportunity to reestablish ourselves as mainstream america and this is this is how we survive
2: yeah i'll say this one of the best things that i saw happen during um 2021 was that the the hunting tags went through the roof and it seemed like a you lot mean the, of more the people. The
1: sales, yeah, the sale, yes, yeah,
2: yeah, the sales of them, and uh, it seems like a lot of people were getting their kids back into hunting.
1: Absolutely, I mean the four national forest, and it was kind of a double edged sword for us because we enjoy those secluded places and those mm-hmm. wild places, and but at the same time, it was refreshing to. I can tell you a couple times driving uh you know while I was in Idaho um uh, out there for a couple months last year and running into people on those mountain roads that had no clue who we were or what we were doing and it was an opportunity for us to introduce families and introduce ourselves to what what we were doing and they weren't offended by it and they I hopefully we changed some perceptions there so it was an opportunity.
2: Mhm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um and this that's all you can do, really, is to right. educate people to let them know you're actual people. So, you know, people in urban areas think that there's just these crazy gun toting people going out to <laughs> just slaughter animals they right. just them. Um, because they, because we've we lost the face behind that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We, we have lost control of that narrative in some way. And you talked about schools and things like that. I mean, that's a deep dive, maybe a conversation for another day of why that has happened. Uh, but, but you speak the truth when, when you say that they are being influenced, that uh, our children are being influenced at an early age and there is an agenda behind it. I, I want to introduce our audience to a term. Some of them will know what it is, but it's, it's fairly a new term. We haven't used it a lot, but, um, you know, what, what are the groups that we need to be concerned about? Um special interest. What's an NGO?
2: Oh, okay. So this is going to be a broad subject um, because there's so many out there. Um, An NGO is a non-governmental organization, which Protect the Harvest is a non-governmental organization. Um, So mainly any of the nonprofit organizations. Um, Some of the groups that we actively fight against are the HSUS, which is the Humane Society of the United States, uh, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, ASPCA, um, gosh, you name I, it. I'm going I to ask I it. give you probably a hundred right off the top of my head. Um, the main reasons we fight against these groups are probably the main reasons you all fight against them, and the fact that they believe that owning an animal is akin to slavery. Um, it's not just, you know, groups like the HSUS go around and they pick up farmers and they say, oh, we're here to help you. We're going to give you some funding, join our little group. And we're just against the big guys. Mm -hmm. Um, That sounds all nice and dandy. And then when they come around and they get rid of the big guys, then they get rid of the little guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's not that they believe that, Oh, animals should just be free range or they should be, you know, tromping in the, the fields. They truly believe that if you own any animal, it is slavery. So, to them, they would rather see all those um, breeds, domestic breeds that we have, you know, bred down from thousands of years, actually go extinct, than for us to own them. That includes dogs, that includes service animals, um, any livestock, you name it.
1: And I, I wanted to touch on the the specific turn term NGO, because it is a term that you see in, in, uh, news articles, you hear the term in the news. Uh, it is a, a critical term that our, our listeners need to know about and NGOs, how do they play a role in policymaking and, um, influencing lawmakers and policymakers in, in government?
2: Oh, it's huge. <laughs> it's huge. Um, You have a handful of little groups like us out there that are, you know, relatively small in in size. And then you have these animal rights organizations that are, I mean, funded by hundreds of millions of dollars a year and they have hundreds and thousands of people working for them. Um, Many of those people are attorneys and many of those people are lobbyists. So they have almost an unlimited budget to go to D.C. and to every state and lobby and push the information to each politician um, to try to get them to jump on board with these, you know, issues that don't look that bad on the surface. Unless you actually read the bills, read the ballot initiatives all the way through, you know, you can easily overlook some of the issues. Um, Like right now, California is dealing with Prop 12. Uh, That's a ballot initiative that they they themselves voted in back in 2018 that Humane Society of the United States pushed. And now they're gonna have no bacon, they're gonna have no pork. Um, and nobody really, you know, that that obviously wasn't on the ballot <laughs> that they would right. have no pork. Um, it was just that, oh, we're gonna take care of these animals and we we don't want them confined and it's inhumane and um but that's not how it works. Um yep. Because yeah, so now, yeah, as as of right now, only four percent of the hog farmers in the United States actually meet the standard for California. When California only you know, only produces ten to fifteen percent of its own pork, and some of those people don't even meet the standards. So you're looking at eighty to ninety percent of the pork that's imported is cut off right now. Mm-hmm. So it's you know that started ten days ago, and we're really not going to know the full implications of it until the, the supply chain catches up. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people cutting contracts off with California, and they are going to have a shortage, a major shortage of pork products if they can find them. Mm-hmm. If they can find them at all, they're going to be through the roof.
1: Right. Uh, if if cutting off bacon doesn't raise alarm. Then I don't think anything's going to. Yeah. And and if an NGO can go in there and influence legislation in a way that starts affecting food supply, and especially bacon, then we got a problem. Yeah. And and we need to need to wake up to what is what is happening there.
2: Um, well, to go along with that, there's actually a ballot initiative in Arizona that's going to be on the ballot this coming November. That is very similar. Um, We had just put out an article on that, but worse than that, I mean, that's, that's terrible for, you know, those buying food and for those producing food in Oregon, they have on their ballot, one that's actually going to greatly affect um, hunting and fishing.
1: You bet. You bet. And what, since you brought up Arizona, we were discussing this yesterday. We just touched on it. So we're working right now. It's it's in the very early stages of development right now. But the animal rights activists and uh, specifically the HSUS, uh, the Center for Biological Wildlife Diversity, biological. I'm probably butchering mm-hmm. that name, and um, the Mountain Lion Foundation, are laying the groundwork to go after large predator hunting in Arizona. So specifically mountain lions, black bears, and bobcats. So not only does that affect wildlife management, and and this was the parallel that I see between my organization and your organization, but when these large carnivore predators go unchecked and unmanaged, there's two problems with that. One, the food, the ranchers are going to be affected in the state of Arizona, because there is no predator management happening. And then when they do end up with predator management, then the farmer, the rancher, and the taxpayer are going to be left holding the bill on that. When there are a group of hunters and sportsmen out there that fit into science-based management, that revenue stream is going to be cut off. They would gladly pay hunting license fees, things like that to help, the farmer the rancher and the taxpayer and alleviate that that burden on them can you talk to us about that after we come back from this break yeah briar creek kennels is your complete hound hunting outfitter boots lights collars and tracking equipment dog boxes kennel supplies collars clothes squalors Whew, they have it all briar creek kennel is a garment and dog trade dealer owner chris girth will ensure briar creek kennel customers will get top of the industry customer service whether you purchase from their website or you find them at a major coonhound event chris and his staff will share expert knowledge and experience about every product they offer chris girth is a top competitor and breeder of hounds he knows what gear you need to be successful Look for Briar Creek Kennels on the web for a complete online store or look at their fully stocked trailer at any major coonhound event. Briar Creek Kennels, offering a hound hunting public, generations of excellence.
2: And this is part of the rewilding movement is what they call it, um, where they're wanting to actually rewild all the rural areas of the United States into just, you know, don't take care of the land. The animals will handle it, and let's just get all the predators, mm. let's get all the animals back out here and see what happens. Um, and they have no clue that this land has been managed long before um we were here, long before Europeans came over.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, Native Americans had been managing the land, burning the land, um, taking care of the predators themselves. And not only, you know. Not only- Go ahead. Here's a, here's a good example of how you can see what's happening. We had a um, a rancher up in, oh gosh, up near Yellowstone, contact us, and he has lost close to a million dollars in cattle over the past ten years due to the grizzly bears up there. They're not allowed to do anything with them. Right. Um, they sit there, and you know, if they're lucky, they might be able to trap one and move it out. Those things will travel ten miles to get back to where they come from. It is a free-for-all that they can just go out there and pick, pick you know, take a calf here, there every day. Um, and they're learning. The grizzly bears are teaching the other grizzly bears that, oh, come over here. You don't need to go and eat whatever in the woods. Um, and it's created a huge problem for these ranchers up there.
1: Yeah, I call that passive habituation. You know, while we aren't specifically putting food out there and teaching these bears to come in to um, and, and feed them specifically, they are learning to use humans as a, an indirect food source. And the problem with, with grizzly bears is the animal rights activists want you to believe that they're saving bears. And in truth several bears are being destroyed. They're being killed. So the narrative that they are protecting the bear, uh, through these, through these passive management issues is a lie. I mean, it's just an outright lie because like you said, a a grizzly, where are you going to move a grizzly bear that has learned that a calf, a cow is food. There is no place to move the grizzly bear. He's going to find more food. And once he does that multiple times, he has to be destroyed.
2: Yeah. But unfortunately, they're not destroying him is the problem. So they're just continually perpetuating the problem. Well, you, um, take, the,
1: you take the mountain lion in California. Uh, mm-hmm. Statistics show that, that we're, the American people are killing more mountain lions. Californians are killing more mountain lions now than they ever did when there was a hunting season. You know, it went through nuisance animal control and government hunting and government trapping and things like that. So it's it's still a narrative, a false narrative built on a, a sand foundation here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, we have this issue now because of the rewilding idea, um, which goes directly hand in hand with the Wildlife Corridors Act, which was a great old thing that was voted in to make it so that we can have, you know, the ability for animals to go from East coast to West coast, from North America to South America, wherever they feel like going, Mm -hmm. Uh, these haven't been fully enacted yet. But if you go look up one of these maps for wildlife corridors, I guarantee probably, probably most of your people that are listening, if they live in a rural area, they are probably going to be affected by this. Let's, Um, let's,
1: let's talk about two things here. One is the rewilding initiative. And two, that Wildlife Quarters Act, because that has been marketed to the hunting public as a good thing. You know, um, uh, wild sheep can now move from their winter range to their summer range. Mm -hmm. Mule deer herds can move uh, and from from their theirs to their breeding grounds and back to their traditional feeding ranges and things like that. So, so tell us, tell my audience the problems with those. Sure. Two issues.
2: And the Great Outdoors Act that passed last year kind of tried to jump on board with that, too, and try to push it as it being a great thing for hunters and fishermen. Um, The problem comes down to when you those wildlife corridors are not areas you can hunt and fish or even touch. They will be off limits to human. To anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So you see in the in California, they had this issue in Ventura County. Where they actually tried to push the wildlife corridor, and there's a decent number of people up there that have horse farms. Um, when they started pushing this, they said, Well, if you're if you have a board that falls off your fence, if you have a barn that burns down, a shed that burns down, you can no longer build anything back up. If you have lighting outside, you can't use that. You have to allow those animals to trespass through your property, even if they're damaging it. No matter what, you cannot build up any sort of barrier. Um, so that takes away, you know, if that was a horse farm, you can't have a fence. You can't have a horse farm. If you have a cattle ranch, you can't have a fence. You're yeah. not going to have cattle. Um, same goes for anyone that's living in the U.S. You know, if you are in a corridor, you're not going to be able to protect your property. Um, it's And you're not going to be able to use that property. Anything that is done on that property cannot affect those animals. So no buildings, no nothing. You can't touch the water. Um, it goes hand in hand with you know the water acts in the U.S. You, it's all a ploy to get as many people out of the rural rural areas as possible into the urban areas, and to just completely give over that land to wildlife.
1: Wow, and and the that is such a hypocritical the people that push these agendas live in communities that have totally disrupted the land. They spray their lawns for beetles and voles and, and things like that. They, they use wildlife services when wildlife decides to use the eaves of their house for, uh, denning areas and their, Mm -hmm. their landscape for food. Um, How much more hypocritical can you possibly be? And I I think there's a certain amount of guilt associated with these people because while they may not draw the direct parallel, they probably can't draw the connection between, you know, my my one-acre yard here is displacing wildlife. They still, deep down inside, have that awareness that they feel like wildlife needs their help. Yeah in an extremist way. The
2: the problem is you got two different types of people you're dealing with in the, in the, uh, animal rights community. You have the people at the bottom that are controlled by emotion and -hmm. they will do anything they can do to save the puppy, save the kitten, save the wild horse. Um, even if it means letting those animals starve to death, at least nobody's touching them. Um, and they are, the nice way to say it is they're brainwashed into thinking that they are helping when they really have no idea what they're doing uh the problem is the people that are controlling those people the people that are running these organizations um they know what they're doing Mm -hmm. and they don't care that it's hypocritical their goal is to follow (laughs) the un sustainable development plan that we jumped on board with Um, so in that sustainable development plan it includes rewilding it includes you know making sure that these animals can have corridors to move back and forth and making sure that people move into urban areas and to give that land up. Um, And that is something that you're probably not going to get most politicians to talk to you about, but that is what most politicians have jumped on board with and saying that we want to follow the UN's plan.
1: Right. And the, the the executives of these NGOs are making big, checks they're you know they're living a, a high salary lifestyle uh based on and and trying to tell us it's for the benefit of the animal but they've just taken an opportunity to pad their portfolios in their bank accounts
2: oh yeah oh yeah and they move from one organization to the next they swap people all the time you know um sure. And some of the very extremist organizations, some that have gotten, you know, unfortunately on the FBI watch list, uh, they'll swap around and put somebody in the HSUS here and there or PETA mm-hmm. and, and pretend like everything's great and grand. Um, right. When it's the same people that make the watch list, that are now in your white, you know, they're at Capitol Hill talking to your politicians when this person was labeled in a terrorist organization.
1: Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, let's, I want to move on here to, to the next topic. And I think vocabulary is important. The words we use are important. We've seen all kinds of words be hijacked, spun and used against, um, hunters and fishermen, ranchers, farmers, and, you know, you take a term like conservation or a conservation organization, you know, any organization, any NGO now that, that does anything for, wildlife, good or bad, is labeled as a conservation organization. So I feel like that, that the way we talk, the terms we use, the vocabulary is important. And, and one of the things on your website I want to get into is animal we- welfare versus animal extremism. And I think it's important we as hunters use the right terms at the right time. If, if we're going to control the narrative, we have to know what we're talking about.
2: You have to. And that is a huge issue is that a lot of the words that farmers, ranchers, hunters, fishermen use, they have been relabeled by extremists and are pushed out over and over and over again to people so that they think it's just a terrible thing. Um, mm-hmm. Slaughter. You know, I mean, that has, has a huge negative connotation on it now. When you know, 50 years ago, it was a regular thing that you went out and I'm going to go slaughter chicken today. Right. Um, but conservation is no longer, they have hijacked the word conservation. You bet. Conservation to them is just completely leave the land alone, leave the animals alone. Um, when you and I's definition of conservation is an actual management of the land and the management mm-hmm. of the animals. So using conservation in a normal, you know, conversation with a lot of people, they do not understand it. So it's important to explain to them either what conservation is or, you know, explaining what management of the land is. Um, It's there's a you name it, (laughs) just like animal rights. Mm -hmm. Animal rights is most people think that's great. Oh, yeah. Animals deserve some rights. Um, Well, no, no, not by our Constitution. They don't. Your right. um, property, uh, they deserve to be treated humanely, um, as rightfully so because they're living beings. Um, we treat them correctly based on their species, but they don't deserve the right to go to school. They don't deserve the <laughs> right to drive a car. Um, right. And unfortunately, we see people actually pushing that. There's a there's a legal battle we're in right now up in New York over an elephant because. The Non-Human Rights Project, which is another great animal rights organization, um, they are pushing to give an elephant the right—the human right of habeas corpus, which is you know um, pretty much when you're being imprisoned illegally—and mm-hmm. um, they have been fighting this and fighting this, and they—they're trying to drain everybody dry on finances is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that should be heard um, sometime this year after. The second time being in court um and them appealing it so if if they are able to get this right to an elephant then that is a com- that is that is the downhill fall right there because if you can give an elephant a right then you can give a dog a right mm-hmm. and you can give a horse a right um and there's your food's gone out the window right there
1: mm-hmm yeah anthropomorphism runs wild in our society and we try to humanize and once you give them rights then how can you possibly eat them you know that's 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 a strategy by them uh but but let's i want to i want to ask you about the the specific terms animal extremism versus animal welfare because farmers ranchers my audience with hounds and you, the use of hounds, I think, how do we lose, lose the ability to show that we are the true stewards? You know, um, wildlife is much more important is, is, is so important to the hunting community. We have spent thousands and thousands of dollars to preserve and and conserve use you know wildlife management science-based wildlife management all those dollars came from the hunting community and yet you know you will constantly see news articles come out about animal welfare bills and they're disguised they're they're snuck in when my audience and your audience are the most concerned people on the planet about animal welfare you're 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 constituents for protect the harvest the people you're protecting depend on that animal to produce their income their food feeding human beings I mean how much more
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know can can you can you put into the the benefit of the animal
2: well you answered your own question there
1: uh, um, unfortunately
2: sorry. the problem is that all we've done which is a lot we've done a lot by you know dumping money into this but who's speaking? who's writing the articles, who's speaking out on social media, who's going to their, you know, county commissioner meetings, who's going to, you know, go talk to their sheriff. These other groups are doing that. Mm -hmm. They are pushing out information constantly on the grassroots level. You know, if you know an animal rights person, you know them because they're willing to speak about it every day, constantly. Mm -hmm. If you know a vegan you know, it within two minutes, of the conversation that they're a vegan. Cause they tell you, um, I've met plenty of ranchers and farmers and hunters that never even mention in a conversation because it's just part of them and they don't think it's important. Right. Um, unless you pry about it. Um, but that's where it starts. It's gotta be the informing part. You know, are you willing to go out and tell your story to everyone, uh, social media in the public setting, Um, you know, are you still somebody that goes out and meets people for coffee every morning? I know there's a lot of older men and communities I'm from in Indiana that people do that. Right. That's where those conversations have to start. Um, and they have to go to places like your city council meetings, your county commissioner meetings. Um, you know, if you have a ranch or your farm or you're raising hunting dogs, when's the last time you invited your sheriff over and said, Hey, I'd like you to check out my facility. So that when the day comes, if the day ever comes that an animal rights group or person comes out here and tries to steal a dog or, you know, take video and pictures. I want you to know what it looks like on a normal day without that, you know, video footage or whatever they have that's been doctored.
1: The circus that comes along Mm -hmm. with, with all of that. Exactly.
2: It has to be a relationship. So you have to have relationships with these people. Um, so my grandfather, Forrest, one of the most important things he says is that the three most important people in your life that can make a difference on everything you do is your three county commissioners. And that is, that is completely, you do not have a clue how many of these issues we deal with that start at the county level.
1: I'm glad you're bringing this up. It completely
2: changes everything that that person's able to do as far as making um, any food or a living. So they mm-hmm. go county to county, to county to county. and then before you know it, they got enough counties, they go to the state. They go state to state to state. Before they got, you know, we got enough states, then we're going to go federal. That's mm-hmm. how it always works. So the unfortunate thing is most of us are busy. Most of us have families and lives, and we're raising animals and we're whatever else we're doing. It's hard to make the time to go to a school board meeting, to go to a county commissioner meeting. But we have to make the time. We have to say, okay, we're going to not be on social media for the next two days. Take that time, do some research, and go meet with these people. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, take some time out of your watching TV and do that. We don't have the ability anymore to say, I'm going to give money to so-and-so over here and expect them to do this for me. The, bi- the problem is too big now that it needs every single person getting involved
1: what a great statement and we talk just the the sacrifice of an evening mm-hmm. you know to to attend the meeting and so that your county commissioners know who you are mm-hmm. uh and you know i still live in a very rural part of indiana so we go to church with the county commissioners we see them at ball games, things like that. So it's easy in a lot of the areas. And I can know I know that a lot of my listeners still live in areas just like I do. So it's not difficult uh, to build that relationship and and be involved in that. And when you build that relationship, there's a good chance that they're going to pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, just so you know, in the upcoming meeting, we've got this on the agenda. And I think you probably ought to know about it. And that's the benefit, but we have to make the time. There is no tomorrow. There is no organization that we can pay to come in and do it. Just like you said, we have to make it important to us. You know, it's part of our, we have to make it part of our daily lives and thought process. A
2: good example is right now you see a huge movement in the school boards where people are just, just tons of people are flocking to scoreboard meetings for once, for once in our lives. Um, to try to actually explain what we want taught to our children. Um, And it's making a difference. There are some really large groups out there that are making a difference and changing what's happening in their school systems. But had those people not shown up, none of that would be done.
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, FFA, um, Future Farmers of America, I grew up with it but the county I live in doesn't even have an FFA chapter or didn't for mm-hmm. several years. They just started another one. Thank goodness. But, uh, 4-H, you know, it's, it's all, everything's a competition for time. Uh, yeah. everything. So, Hey, I want to, I want to wrap this up. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I know your time's very valuable, Teresa. And, uh, but tell people, I see, I see a, a on your website here about articles and educational materials. And I talked about us learning how to talk about these things. What sort of resources does Protect the Harvest provide to help us, you know, establish this narrative and good talking points and how to approach these issues?
2: Sure. We have a whole pile of articles and information on our website, um, which is at www.protecttheharvest.com. Um, If you can't find an article on what you're needing help with, you just call me (laughs) and the phone number's on the website. Also, it's an 800 number. You're welcome to call anytime. You Um,
1: answer when I called.
2: Yep. If you don't have (laughs) the information, if you can't find it, let us know and we'll find it for you or we'll do the research and um, get something for you. If you have an issue in your county or city um, or even state that you think we may not be aware of, um, you're welcome to share it with us at any time. and we will look into it and see what we can do. Uh, we have a monthly newsletter that goes out so you can subscribe to that on our website. We also have about every social media platform you can think of right now, uh, under our belt, just because there's so many that are, uh, censoring. We have jumped on to just about everything. So we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, uh, me, we LinkedIn, you name it. There's quite a few others, but, um, We try to stay on just about every platform so that the people that do get censored or banned from some of the major ones still get our information out there. And um,
1: how does your organization work? Is it, do you have a paid staff or do you depend on volunteers and people or do you have a mixture of both?
2: We have a couple paid staff, but most of our uh, people are volunteers. So um, we have volunteer opportunities we do go to events occasionally across the U S uh, but the bigger thing is we like to have social media volunteers where we're getting people involved in spreading information, sharing articles, you know, going into groups, um, on social media, you know, joining ag groups, hunting groups and telling them that they need to get involved and speak the voice of those communities to their local communities. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, great. Um, again, Teresa, I I just think that there are so many parallels between the hunting community and the farming and ranching community, uh, just in the, in the, the act of, you know, wildlife management versus animal husbandry. And, and a lot of our folks actually do both, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sitting on a, on a small farm in Southeastern Indiana right now. So, um, there is definitely a parallel there. And I think, um, in the modern age of people being able to be YouTube farmers and still hang on to a misguided message of animal rights. I don't get that, but, uh, we've been mischaracterized as, as not respecting animal rights or, and not respecting landowner rights. When in fact, a lot of our listeners are the <laughs> landowners. So, Teresa, I appreciate it. I hope to talk to you again and we can start collaborating and getting the message out of, of issues and things that uh, Protect the Harvest is working on and vice versa. Do you see an opportunity here for us to work together?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, we're willing to work with pretty much any group that's on the same side as us. We're uh, We're open to talking about anything and working together on we have project
1: we have to build this united front we've got to pull every asset we have out the animal rights animal extremists are well organized they strategize everything they're doing is well thought out they don't do anything with knee-jerk reactions you know they they've got people that crunch data and watch trends and and all of that stuff and they bring all those forces to bear so being unorganized those days are long gone it's time to stand together I appreciate yep. it. Thank, thank you, so you very, much. thank you very much, Teresa.